everybody. I'm Scott Miller, the host of the weekly On Leadership series sponsored by the Franklin Covey Company. We're now well into our second year of interviews. And if you're just joining us as a new subscriber, welcome. And I encourage you to dip back into some of the previous nearly now 60 interviews across the, the lifespan of our program. You can visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab and dip, dig back into the archives. Some amazing interviews with Susan Kane, Liz Wiseman, Chris McChesney, General Stanley McChrystal, Dan Pink, Seth Godin, Stephen M. R. Covey. We've had some amazing interviews. I, I'm often asked, which are my favorite? And I always say, well, do you mean which favorite part of which interview? Because it's been an amazing ride. And today is no different. We have the renowned thought leader on unconscious bias and diversity expert Howard Ross joining us from Maryland, the author of the recent book, Everyday Bias. Howard Ross, welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership. Hi, Scott. It's great to be with you. Hey, so delighted that you joined us. A lot to talk about today. I want to jump right in. I'd first like, Howard, if you would indulge me and our listeners and talk a bit about your journey. What's, you know, what's been your academic and professional expertise that's led up to several books, most recently, Everyday Bias, that's ready for its second uh, reprint, I think you said, in um, paperback coming soon. So talk a bit about what led you to On Leadership today. Sure, Scott. Thanks so much for having me, first of all. I'm glad to be with you. Um, you know, it, it was an interesting path. I, I didn't set about to do diversity and inclusion work particularly because, of course, when I was younger, that wasn't even a field to be in. Um, but I did come out of a family tradition that really guided this to some degree. My family um, is Jewish and we're from Eastern Europe and we suffered enormous loss in the Holocaust. We know that 43 members of our family were killed in two days on August the 2nd and 3rd, 1942, as just as one example, when the Nazis came into the village in the western Ukraine that my grandfather grew up in and killed all but 100 of the 5,000 Jews who lived there. And so I was born in January of 1951 in the shadow of that. And there was also a very important message in my family that you're supposed to do something about these things. My grandfather was the person who organized the group that outfitted the Exodus ship at Baltimore Harbor. My grandmother was an organizer for the International Ladies Harbor Workers Union. So, um, so there was a combination of these messages. On one hand, bad things can happen. And on the other hand, you're supposed to do something about it. So, so I got involved in um, civil rights when I was a teenager. Um, and later became a teacher. And when I was a teacher, <clears throat> took over running a school that I was working in and tripled it in size in a year and found out that nothing that I knew about managing people worked anymore. <laughs> so I started to study organizational change and leadership. And the two of them came together um, in the 1980s when the diversity movement started. And I had been at that point moved on to doing consulting and organizational development. And we had these environments that had been created um, by a large movement of white women and men and women of color into the workforce in the late 70s. And now all of these environments in which people were working together but had no idea how to work together with the, with the new realities. And so it sort of took off from then um, <clears throat> and started doing what at that time was a sort of older line, traditional diversity work where we kind of hit people with a two by four until, especially if they looked like this, and, uh, and sort of hope people would see the error of their ways, but realized very quickly that that model didn't work very effectively. So Howard, of course, I read the book in preparation for our interview. Solid book. I learned a lot. Franklin Covey has our own book coming out on unconscious bias in 2020, and I really enjoyed learning some of the insights from, you, from your book. One of them was, you know, instead of trying to fix your biases, really spend some time becoming aware of them. Uh, talk to the average listener like me out here that yeah. has biases. How do we recognize our own biases and what can we do to become more aware of them? 
Yeah, it's a great question, Scott, because, you know, it's really interesting. Most of us uh, think that bias is a bad thing. We've heard that so many times, you know, and if you ask people, I ask audiences sometimes how many people think, think that bias equals badness and 80 percent of the hands get raised. But the reality is bias is simply a function of the mind. I mean, it's uh, it's the way we make decisions. We, we see something. We make a quick assessment of what that thing is based on previous experience, of course, because what else could we possibly base it on? And then we act in accordance with that. So we might say in a very simple form, the function of the mind could show up as something as simple as walking across your living room floor. You know, you, you know that your living room floor supports you, so you don't have to think about it. You walk quickly across the floor. But if, if folks who are listening now could imagine that one time recently you had stepped on a place in the floor and fallen through to the basement, then each step of the floor subsequently to that would be a tentative step. You'd have to stop and check it out. And similarly, if we had to make decisions about every new thing in life or every new person in life, um, it would slow our processing down so slowly that we couldn't really get anything done. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that those kinds of quick decisions aren't always good decisions. Sometimes they can be, as we know, uh, disastrous and tragic as when a police officer pulls a trigger too quickly because somebody looks more dangerous than they actually are. But sometimes they could be life-saving when we react quickly to a threat that's coming our way and are ready to respond to it. So, you know, what we discovered in doing the work is that rather than trying to make biases stop, which is which is almost impossible. It's like getting us to stop breathing because they're so essential to our survival. Instead, what we do is learn to manage them, to learn to mitigate the impact of them and be more aware of how they're affecting us. So Howard, speak to all the formal leaders, millions of them listening to this or watching this week's episode. We all have biases. You say stop trying to you know, avoid them and become more aware. Is there just a quick exercise that someone like me can sit down at my desk and draw a T-chart or something to say, what are my unconscious biases in life? How are they manifesting with the team that I lead? And how can I get my arms around them in terms of my interviewing skills, who I'm promoting, who I'm favoring, what projects, anything tangible I can do to better uncover in the workplace, what's prejudicing based on my biases, how I lead or reward or punish the people that are working for me? And this, to some extent are dependent upon my favor, my grace, my latitude for their own careers. Yeah, look, it's a great question, Scott, because the truth is, you know, people ask me, you know, what are the circumstances where, where this occurs? And my answer is often uh, anytime people are engaged, because it's that universal, you know, um, it, it's an always all the time thing. And just a quick example, let's say two people come in to do an interview with me. We'll call them John and Mary. I meet John in the morning and I have that feeling when I meet him that we've all had in meeting somebody, something about this guy I like. Right? It's sort of an instant visceral feeling, happens within seconds of meeting him. So I ask him the first question of the interview, and he hems and haws a little bit. And just out of kind of having a positive vibe with him, I say, John, look, I know it's an interview. I know you're nervous. Take a breath. Let me ask the question again. You know, it took me about four seconds to say that, but it fundamentally changed the whole energy of the interview because now he feels supported. He feels like I'm engaged with him. I make eye contact. I'm laughing in this joke. The interview goes great. You know, Sally comes in you know, let's say, you know, six hours later, and either my, my internal sleaze alarm might go off, you know, something might turn me off about her without realizing it, or I just may be distracted by something. Let's say, you know, I just got off of, you know, this happened with me, with me not long ago. I was on a phone call with one of my clients in India for a couple hours from 6.30 to 8.30 in the morning, uh, listening through heavy accents. My mind was very engaged and 
fatigued from that. I go into a meeting and my half of my mind is still in India. So, so I ask her the first question and she hems and haws a little bit. And this time I just sit there with my arms crossed or maybe even make one of those quick glances at my watch that she's not supposed to see. And so now she's sweating bullets. And based on that four second interaction, these interviews go two completely different directions. The next day you say to me, how did the interview go? And I say, well, you know, he was great. She was okay. Uh, and I don't even, I'm not even aware that, um, that the four or five seconds that I engaged differently with them set completely different tracks for those interviews. Now, on one level, we can say that Mary in that case, or Sally, whatever name I used, I apologize, um, uh, didn't, give a fair, didn't get a fair shake. But it's also a pretty stupid way to make a talent management interview, because if I made an assessment of somebody after five seconds, it obviously wasn't about him. I obviously was, he was probably reminding me of somebody from my life. And, and this is what the, the message that we want to give people is that we can make better people management decisions. We can make better decisions really in every facet of our business by paying attention to these, to these fundamental mind bugs that we have. Well, you'd argue, Howard, that really is a leadership competency now, right? Is understanding Absolutely. your biases to ensure yes. that you're making the best recruitment offer decisions to new candidates. You're promoting the right people for the right reasons. And so leaders that become consciously more aware of our biases are probably going to end up exponentially better off for the organization's benefit by promoting and hiring the right people for the job, as opposed to how we were feeling about it from some unconscious bias in the moment. That's right. Look, Scott, you know, we, we tend to think of this work, unconscious bias work, from a diversity and a people standpoint, but we know that the very same mechanisms we're talking about created the entire field of behavioral economics, right. for example. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for, for studying how the mind causes people to make bad investment decisions, among other kinds of things. You know, every decision we make in life can be governed by these same kinds of uh, blind spots that we have, where we're drawn to do something in one way because we think it's the right way to do, or because we're comfortable and familiar familiar with it, when in fact it may not be the right thing to do. And we're not using clear criteria because these unconscious drivers are the things that are sometimes forcing our action more than the conscious ones. And by the way, I say we because, you know, as much as I've studied this now and I've, I've done this work professionally for almost 35 years and, and longer than that on a personal level, they still come up for me sometimes. Howard, you also write in your book that, you know, media, the media, reinforces our unconscious biases. Obviously, the political climate in America it ha has done that as well, right? And we don't need to go there because everyone's got an opinion on that, me included. But you right. also write that organizations, businesses have biases as, as well. L a lot of C-level subscribers to this podcast and to this interview mm -hmm. series. What advice would you give to organizations, which of course aren't people, no offense, Mitt Romney, but people right. run organizations what advice would you give to the C-suite to help to navigate their messaging, their marketing, their innovation, product development, the way that they message out on social media? Anything you'd advise the C-suite to be more aware of as they look to, A, hone in on their customer, but also to make their products and services more available to a broader base? Yes, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things that we need to recognize, uh, Scott, is that as I said before, every decision is governed by this. And so um, 
often people will say to me, you, you sit down in the meeting, should we say, are there any biases here? And my response is, is no. What we should say is, what are the biases right. here? Because every decision we make, we come in with already some pre-opinions about, something that we've already learned about that. Mm -hmm. From a CEO standpoint, um, that, could be, that could be as significant as major trends in the marketplace. I mean, look, we look at biases, famously biases that have happened to entire corporations. I, I you know, like to use the Encyclopedia Britannica as an example. The Encyclopedia Britannica's bias was that they saw themselves as a book company. Well, um, you know, it, they weren't. They were an information company. But had they seen themselves as realized that they were an information company earlier, then we may not even have Wikipedia now. They may have gathered that entire online encyclopedia market. But by the time they they sort of realized what was happening, it had already left. Codex, another example. You know, in the in the uh, as an industry, an entire industry that was biased by its success. And this is one of the things I think is so important for people in leadership to realize. Um, is that we make these decisions often not just because things are going wrong, but sometimes our greatest bias is because we're come because we're successful and we think that our success is governed by what got us here without realizing the other possibilities that are right in front of us. You know, I mean, you guys do business work all the time and I'm sure you can think of a hundred examples, the Swiss watchmakers, you know, the, all of these examples of, of that kind of thinking. Now, where people are concerned, it's, it's of course, everything from who do we hire, um, who, how do we promote them? What job assignments we give them? You know, just as an example, one of the research studies that we came across from the uh, Center for Creative Leadership down in Greensboro, North Carolina, um, is that uh, uh, white men, young white men, are likely to be given stretch opportunities at work far more than white women or men and women of color. And by stretch opportunities, I mean that job assignment that you haven't proven yourself to do yet, but people just kind of think that you can do it. Um, and that's, by the way, regardless of the race or gender of the person who's giving the assignment. Um, why is that? Because we feel like we could take a risk with those who are more comfortable with us, often who remind us of ourselves, or who meet some profile, consciously or unconsciously, that we think looks like the kind of person who can get this job done. So we could find you know, literally thousands of examples. Um, I, the question is, are we stopping to consider where that decision-making is coming from? Uh, Howard, I couldn't help but think of our own company when you were using that last example around you know, the encyclopedia. I, I've been in this firm for 23 years. I, I choose to stay here because it's a great place to work and for all the opportunities they've given me. And I also think that we have a big bias inside of our company because Franklin Covey, right now in business for almost 40 years, we're yep. known by many in the world as the inventor of the Franklin Planner, the Franklin Planning Process, which was wildly, insanely popular for almost 30 years. We're no longer in that business anymore. We're also known as the Seven Habits People, right? We were a training consulting company, but we're really not anymore. We're now an intellectual property company. We're helping right. companies transform cultures that use our all access pass. And I think we're trying to also work on the rebrand, the, the bias that customers have for or against us, but I'll bet there's a lot of work to be done internally on the thousand people who work here, many of which have 15, 20, 30 year tenures that still have a unconscious bias towards what we were when they started, right? Or what we reinforce. Right. So I'm guessing for CEOs, there's a level of inside communication work that needs to be done to make sure that everybody's biases are in the right direction for the growth of the brand, the company, shareholders, customers. Yeah, look, Scott, you know, it's funny because your, your own company is a great example of the very thing we were talking about. I mean, who's using planners anymore? 
You know, very few people, you know, we remember, you know, 20, 30 years ago, everybody carried their planner. You know, right. everybody in, who was significant in business had their planner. Now, of right. course, we all do this on our iPhones or, our, or yeah. whatever phones we have. And so, you know, if you would have kept trying to make a better planner, a newer planner, right. a bigger planner, you know, right. it still wouldn't have mattered if people aren't using planners. So, I mean, I think it, it's it's another example of the very dynamic that we were talking about before. You know, I think that I think that from a CEO perspective, from a leadership perspective, and, and by the way, you know, I can relate to this not just from the standpoint of a consultant, but I ran a company for many years. As, as you know, as I told you, I just sold Cook Ross last summer, the company that I, I created and ran for 30 years. <coughs> Excuse me. And when we're in these leadership positions, um, we have just dozens and dozens of decisions that come across our desk. And, and the pace of that decision-making um, often can cause us to make these quick decisions. And the quick decisions almost always come from pattern behavior. You know, the reason we can make a quick decision is because we've done it before and we're relying on something we've done before. Now, in a lot of cases, that's fine. It's not to say that we can't do many of our decisions in that way, but when we're dealing with something that requires new thinking, that can limit us seeing the possibilities that are in the circumstance, like whether it's a new person or whether it's a new marketing plan or a new product line or anything else. And um, and so, you know, I, I mentioned the Swiss watchmakers is a great example. You know, the Swiss watchmakers were the watchmakers of the world for, for generations until in the mid-1960s, somebody discovered quartz watches and, and quartz watches changed the entire industry. The ironic thing is that the person who invented the quartz watch was Swiss, hmm. but they were so convinced that their way of making watches was the best way that they didn't even protect the idea and Seiko and Tesco's instruments walked by and the rest is history. So, um, so the kind of thinking that we're trying to get people to do um, at a leadership level is to bring, is to bring consciousness to decision-making, to be willing to pause for a moment and say, okay, is this situation actually happening the way I think it's happening, or is that my interpretation of the way it's happening? What other interpretations might there be? Is there other information that I'm not including in this decision? And what's the best way to move forward? I'm not talking about paralysis by analysis. I'm talking about you know taking a few minutes here or there. Sometimes it's a matter of stopping for 30 seconds or a minute to just check in with ourselves to see what are we reacting to. And of course, the entire field of behavioral economics, as I said earlier, is now finding that a lot of the um, decisions we make in business are, are flawed because we don't take the time to do that. Howard, that thought reminds me of a previous interview that was profound. We interviewed Susan David, who is a, a PhD at Harvard Medical School. She wrote an amazing book called Emotional Agility. We had her on the program a few months ago, and she's South African, so she's lovely you know, to listen to as well, yeah. not to mention very credible, and, and an insanely popular TED Talk. And Susan in the interview, who probably should be my standby psychiatrist or psychologist because she was so lovely and, and, and smart, yeah. Uh, and gracious. She really taught me about how often I'll go into a meeting or a conversation where I've built a narrative about what's going to happen because, you know, my last encounter with the leader of the meeting was rough and I'm convinced they're out to push their agenda or to, you know, trip me up. And this is a great place to work, right? But we all have these biases we formulate. As I just listened to you, I'm also now much more mindful as I'm going into a conference call to a meeting, to some kind of event checking, is my narrative true, right? Is the, are the biases that I've developed against this product or this project plan, am I giving it a fair shake? And I think as you're talking about, maybe just take a few minutes or a few seconds before you enter a conversation, an interview, a decision. The biases that you have, are they helpful or are they harmful to you, to the success, to the other person? Just takes a couple seconds. 
Yeah, it doesn't take much at all. And you know, it's it's when we're talking about Susan's work. I mean, we are talking about basic emotional intelligence here. We're talking about bringing consciousness to our decision making. Uh, like I said, I mean, I think when we when we look at it from the framework of diversity and inclusion, because that's where my experience is. That's where I was particularly focusing with the book. We see it only in a people dynamic, but it really happens in in terms of virtually every decision we make. And if we um, and if we uh, are willing to just take a few moments and check in with ourselves. You know, sometimes it's simple tactics. Like one, of the, I do a lot of pro bono work with teachers and educators because I started my career, as I said earlier, as a teacher and an educator. And um, one of the things I, I often say to teachers, for example, is the first day your students are in class, before you've gotten a chance to interact with them much, give them like a little assignment at your desk, at their desks, and then just take a moment and jot down for yourself what are your first impressions of each student, hmm. just looking at them, because that's a great window into what your mind may be making up about that that student. Now I know. Wow, I already see this one as put to get well put together, or I see this one as. Uh, maybe this one's kind of a mess, or this one looks like they could be a troublemaker. Well, where's that data coming from? Because they haven't really interacted with me yet. So uh, obviously I have to then be aware of those biases, which could make me either overly um, uh, friendly or supportive of one student or overly critical and, and um, harsh on another one. Um, and the same is true at work. You know, if we stop every now and again to check in, why is it that this person irritates me so much? You know, they haven't really done anything to irritate me. Who knows? Maybe their personality reminds me of my older brother who used to bug me a lot or, or somebody who used to work with in the past. You, you never know what's triggering that memory grab in, in the brain that has us uh, see one person as like another. Howard, I think that is the one point of the entire interview is I think we all struggle with this, as, as you mentioned. In a few minutes, I'm going to get to these six challenges that you, these six steps to help to uh, uncover our biases. I've just written my own book, Management Mess Leadership Success. It's done quite well. The book is all about kind of the messes we find ourselves in as leaders. And one of these messes that I confess quite openly is I have a propensity as a leader to take a snapshot of a person the first time I meet them. They might be a 23-year-old event planner making $36,000 a year. And I tend to, for the next decade, treat them as a 23-year-old event planner making 36 grand a year. When now they're 36-year-old, they're the top salesperson in their region, they're making $136,000 a year. As right. you were talking, I was thinking about meetings. You know, when I walk into a meeting with Paul or Colleen or Becky or Pam, do I treat them like I first met them or do they, did they do something once that irritated me and now I have a bias towards them because they were my champion or against them because yep. they challenged me and it permeates, I gotta think, a lot of our day-to-day -day decision making and it harms people. Yeah, and are you prepared to listen to Becky um, with more uh, attention and focus because of something you make up about Becky or because of your past experience with Becky yeah. and, and not hear that one of the, Pam uh, has the best idea at the table because you're so busy listening to Becky. I mean, we see yeah. that this shows up around gender a lot actually, that, you know, I mean, any woman who's, who's listening and any man who's been paying attention knows that one of the real patterns is a woman will say something in a meeting, nobody notices, 10 minutes later a guy says the same thing and a eureka moment happens and right. everybody says, what an amazing comment. I mean, well, why is it? It wasn't like somebody said it, this is where it's really important for us to get. And this is where I think a lot of people, even as the unconscious bias work has proliferated now in the diversity space particularly, that a lot of people haven't quite gotten the point of this, which is that very few people wake up in the morning, especially in, in corporate America or the like, and wring their hands and say, how can I suppress women and people of color today? Right. You know, that's not the way it happens. Um, I'm not saying there aren't those people out there. We need to, we need to obviously um, 
put boundaries around those people or get rid of them from our system if we had the David Dukes or the Richard Spencers of the world in our organization. Um, but mostly what happens is more along the lines of the interview example I gave, which is somebody you know, is doing their work, they're trying to make decisions, they're making the best decisions that they can, and they don't even realize that they just tend to listen more, um, more with more attention to this person than that person or give this person more credibility than that person um, or that sort of thing. And, and then we lead to these decisions that can not only, as I said before, be unfair at times to people, but they can also lead to really stupid business decisions because we didn't listen to the right person and we didn't get the right information. Howard, in chapter four of your book, you share the tragic story about Trayvon Martin and the shooting with, with Zimmerman in Florida about seven yes. years ago, I think 2012. And I don't want to dwell on that, but I enjoyed reading the story. I'm actually from Orlando, Florida. It happened about yeah. 25 miles north in Sanford. And, and the courts, of course, settled it, whether we agree with the decision or not. Mm -hmm. The tragedy still exists for everybody involved. What would you glean from your sort of post-mortem on the Trayvon Martin shooting in Sanford? And what can we learn from that in terms of our own biases, not as we're out, you know, trying to nab people yeah. or any side of that story? What, what can we learn from that? Well, yeah, sadly, Scott, you know, Trayvon feels like such, uh, so far in the past now, because we've had so many of these tragic right. incidents, right. you know, one after another for a while. But I do think, I did spend quite a bit of time um, where Trayvon was concerned, looking at um, the court documents, the testimony, um, listening to the the uh, police reports and all of this kind of stuff. And, and it was clear, you know, if you, if you pay attention to it, and if people want, they could read, of course, the whole story in the book. But the, um, it, it's really clear that, um, that this was a case where bias was operating in multiple directions. There was the obvious one, which is that had I been walking down the street that night with a hoodie over my head drinking an Arizona iced tea, George Zimmerman wouldn't even have noticed, let alone calling the police. And I think we could all, you know, pretty much testify that that's likely to be the case. So the, the fact that he even altered at first was the issue. But then when we look at what happened even after the shooting, the assumptions that people made, how quickly people jumped in to assuming uh, who was guilty, who wasn't guilty. Um, the, uh, the fact that the, uh, the police department felt pressure uh, because of their own experience of being accused of bias, and they made some decisions uh, and made some assumptions based on that, including, by the way, charging him probably with the inappropriate crime because the fact that they charged him with first degree murder is why he was exonerated. It wasn't that he didn't shoot Trayvon, nor that they said he was innocent of committing any crime, but they charged him with the wrong crime as it turned out. And because they did that, they couldn't convict him of that crime because uh, there was no real sense of uh, proving premeditation. Um, but all of that came from the fact that they felt that pressure from the community and that pressure led to their biases towards making decisions. So, um, but when we take, use that one as a starting point, then we go to Michael Brown and Ferguson and we look at what happened with Darren Wilson, the police officer and Michael Brown. Um, Darren Wilson said in his testimony, I came into this community knowing that they didn't like us there, meaning the African-American community and the white police. And so he was already on the defensive. And when we get on the defenses, our amygdala, the fear system of the brain gets triggered and we're hypersensitive to our stereotypes and our biases. Then we see Michael Brown, who probably did have a story about white police officers based on the fact that there was a long history of white police officers harassing people like him in that community. So he came into it with his own biases. And the two of these systems hit and it's like oil hitting 
uh, a match. I mean, all of a sudden we have combustion. And I'm not saying, by the way, these were equal dynamics because obviously the police officers had a huge power differential um, over Michael Brown. But nonetheless, we see it happening there. We see it happening when police officers shoot at Tamir Rice, a mere 12-year-old, because he has a toy gun and they see that gun and they react without thinking. Um, these kinds of things happen and we could go through all of these tragic stories one after another. Um, but what we see is that there's nothing about what police officers have done in these circumstances that makes them any less um, human, any less humane as human beings than any of the rest of us. The difference is, of course, that their job leads to interactions that can cause fatality. But the same mechanism that has us make these decisions um, causes people to make poor business decisions, poor hiring decisions, poor decisions with their own children at times. And, um, you know, I, I, I've worked a lot with police officers and law enforcement people over the course of the last few years, as you might imagine. And my experience has been that they're, generally speaking, really good people who get up in the morning and do, want to do a real good job. Some of them are incredibly committed to service. But we put them in a circumstance where they are faced with life and death circumstances and have split seconds to make a decision. If they make the wrong decision, there will be the next national pariah. And this is, this is an almost untenable position that we have between both sides of this equation. So the more we can understand and bring consciousness to our decision-making, um, the less likely we are to have tragic circumstances like this occur. Howard, thanks for addressing that. It's an emotional issue for everyone. Uh, unfortunately, reoccurring seems like almost, you know, monthly in America. The book is excellent, Everyday Bias. I especially enjoyed Chapter 4 because it really made me think about kind of my own hometown, right, and what's going on there. Yeah, of course. I'd like course. to finish our time the next six minutes and literally spend mm -hmm. a minute on each of these six steps you have to help us accept and understand our biases. The first one is just that, that accept that biases are normal and universal. G give us some permission for a moment to talk about that. Sure. Well, this is one of the, this is, you know, I, I started with that when I was talking about the fact that we have this bias equals badness equation in our minds. And, and this is one of the most, it's funny because it feels almost oxymoronic, you know, almost counterintuitive, um, that the more we accept our biases, the more we can work with them. You know, Carl Jung, um, uh, Carl Jung once said, we can't change anything until we accept it. Condemnation does not liberate, it oppresses. When we fight this part of ourselves and act like we can drive it away because we think it makes us bad, it actually drives us drives it more into the unconscious because none of us like to think of ourselves as being bad. You know, we all like to think of ourselves as being good people. And so if I have a part of myself that makes me feel guilty or ashamed, I'm going to um, try to make that go away or justify it in my mind. And for too long, the currency of these conversations has been, you're a bad person, you've got to be a better person. But in fact, we know that that's not necessarily the case. Again, I'm not saying there are not bad people out there, but most of these things happen when good people make bad decisions. So the more we can accept, yes, I have bias, what are the ones that are occurring right now, and then be honest and open about that, we bring the conscious then up in, uh, the, excuse me, the unconscious up into the conscious. Another young quote, he said um, that until we make the unconscious conscious, it will rule our lives and we will call it fate. And this is unfortunately how a lot of us operate. You know, we operate more like marionettes who are being pulled by the strings of our unconscious drivers. And we never stop to say, what's this string telling me to do and why? And so really the first part of it is say, yes, I have biases. Let me turn that flashlight inward to watch myself and see how I can pay attention to that. Howard, step two is learn to observe yourself. Talk about that. And that's the piece I was just talking about. You know, most of us, most of us do the world kind of like this, like what's going on out there and how do I fix it? And how do I react to it? And how do I respond to it? But what we don't think about is, you know, 
what's going on here? As my grandmother used to say, when you're pointing at other people, three, pe three fingers are pointing back at you. you know, um, what, why am I interpreting this the way it is? You know, rather than saying that person is obnoxious, I might say to myself, what is it about that person that I'm reacting to so strongly and so negatively to? Um, and, and especially we begin to notice not everybody thinks that person is obnoxious. For some people, he or she is their best friend. Yeah. So why is it that he's occurring that way for me, but not to somebody else? And, and that's the real window. What's the lens that we're looking through, that background that filters what we're seeing? And the more we inquire into that, the better. Now, sometimes we don't even necessarily know what the trigger is. We can just know that there's something about this person that I'm making mean something. And this is kind of the important key is that the human mind is a meaning making machine. And when we see, and this is of course what Stephen Covey's work brought to attention to a lot of people, that we see um, things through our own lens and through our own experience. I'm going to leave here paralyzed, not knowing what I should do or say next. Know. You know, it's really meeting, funny, Scott. Right? Let me tell you a quick story about that. When I was writing my first book, uh, Reinventing Diversity, it was when I started to really study this stuff. And I had a little writing room. My wife and I have a little farm outside of the city. And I was in my writing room and I'd been reading these, maybe the hundredth study about unconscious bias that I had studied at that point. And my wife comes in and I'm sort of sitting back in my chair and looking up like the air like this. And she says, what's wrong? And I said, I'm trying to think if I can trust anything that I think anymore. <laughs> so I know exactly what you're talking about. So step three, Howard, is practice constructive uncertainty. Expand yeah, on this that. is a really important one, you know, and this is important, especially for successful leaders. You know, one of the things we find is that often people will say to us, yeah, I know this bias stuff happens to those kind of stupid people, but I'm really smart. But, you know, the, the, the fascinating thing is that what the research teaches us is that the smarter people are and the more confident they are of their intelligence, the more blind spots they have and the more calcified those blind spots become. And it makes sense if you think about it, if you're used to being the brightest bulb in the box and the one who always has the answers, you don't question your answers so much. You just say what's on your mind and figure you're right. Whereas if you're a little uncertain about yourself, you question yourself. So what I'm really saying here is let's turn some of those exclamation points into question marks. Rather than saying it is that way, let's say, okay, I think it's that way. Or is there anything I might be missing? Um, could there be any um, new information? Could there be another perspective? Uh, could things mean something different than I'm making them mean? And bringing that kind of inquiry, that kind of um, conscious, uh, constructive uncertainty. And I say constructive uncertainty because I don't want people to hear this as paralysis by analysis either. I'm talking about just a moment here, a moment there when we say, okay, did that really happen or am I making up that it happened? Or am I interpreting that it happened? And, and even a question at that minimal level can have a huge impact on how we relate. Because if you are, let's say, let's say I brand you as obnoxious for some reason. Um, now it lives with you, and I'm going to sit here and try to change you and figure something out. But if I say, okay, my interpretation of Scott is that he's obnoxious, then it pulls my attention back over here where I can do something about it and say, okay, why am I interpreting him that way? Why am I reacting to him that way? And how can I work this in a way that I get to know whether or not that's actually accurate? I feel like you're in our meetings here at Franklin Covey. <laughs> Howard, have you read Liz Wiseman's book, Multipliers? No, I haven't. It, you got to buy it. I've heard about it, though. I've heard good things oh, about yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Liz is a friend of ours, but, but more important, she's written this amazing book called Multipliers, where uh -huh. one of her premises is if you're not multiplying talent, you're accidentally diminishing it. But she takes yep. this step further and says too often leaders that have been trained to be the smartest person in the room, they're the genius and not the genius maker. And it kind of goes to your point around our calcified moments on our own hubris, right? I think the best book ever written might be with three authors, Howard Ross, Susan David, and Liz Wiseman. I'm gonna hook you up, the three of you. <laughs> oh, well, it's very generous of you to say that. But I will say this, um, Scott, that, that 
Um, that's exactly uh, the dynamic that we're talking about because, you know, when you're good at something um, and you've been successful at something and you've been rewarded for something, you get pretty attached to that thing. It's not, you know, when we look at the, one of the great examples in our lifetimes, you know, Michael Jordan leaving being the best basketball player in the world and going to become a mediocre baseball player just because he was chasing a dream that he had. Well, that was actually amazingly courageous, you know, incredibly yeah. courageous. But most of us are not willing to do that. Most of us will tend to go towards things that we know. You know, like that old saying, if all you have is a hammer, every, everything looks like a nail yeah. to you. And, and in business, this can cause huge, huge challenges and huge missed opportunities because people say, you know, we, we don't do that. IBM wasn't, you know, IBM wasn't good at the laptops. No, we do mainframes. Well, at some point that cost them. They had to catch up, you know. We've seen so many hundreds of examples of that in business. And so, so this is, we're talking now about clearer leadership thinking. We're talking about clear decision-making about everything from product development to marketing, to sales, to hiring people, every aspect of what a leader has to do. Howard, our time is tight, but I want to get on these last four steps. The yes. Number four is pay attention to uncomfortable moments. Yes, this is really important because a lot of times we're geared towards avoiding conflict, avoiding the, uncomfort, the uncomfortable moments. And so something happens. You know, you're in a staff meeting and somebody says something, you notice two of your colleagues look at each other and roll their eyes. You know, do you go up to them afterwards and say, what was that about? If you're the leader of the team, because maybe there's some information there. Like, and then they say to you, well, that person said that they would do something, but they never deliver. And so, you know, it's like, you know, who are we kidding here? And so all of a sudden, you know, that there's a problem in the group. Um, and so often we find, and I know, you know, this is in a new age terms, people always talk about how your challenges are your biggest opportunities and all that stuff. But we know that in reality, there's huge learning that comes from the breakdowns that happen between people, those tensions that happen with people, those times when things aren't working can be as instructive to us as things that are working. And so um, we want to learn to lean into those. And particularly where people are concerned, we can sometimes pick up underlying underlying tensions, underlying um, belief systems. I mean, I had this recently, I was in a conversation with somebody and her reaction was completely over the top given the subject we were talking about. So I could stop and say, okay, can we put a pause for a second? It feels like there's something else under this reaction. And it turned out there was something that she had been irritated at me about before that was showing up in this conversation. Right. And by right. asking the question, we were then able to clear that other thing up, right. get back and connected with each other. No longer had any disagreements about the thing we were arguing about. Yeah. So. So, so well said, Howard. Step five is get to know people from other groups. Yeah, this is one of the things that the research shows. Some researchers, Brian Nasek and Calvin Lai from uh, University of Virginia, studied bias reduction techniques all over the world. And they found that one of the things that really has impact is that when we expose ourselves to people um, who we have bias, who represent groups that we have biases about. So the, to, I like to say colloquially, the more we know each other for who we are, the less we treat each other like what we are. You know? mm. And one of the things we know, for example, is that racial bias is the greatest in places where racial diversity is the least. So you go to parts of the country where there are almost no black people, bias against black people is very high because of course the characterization of black people is all stereotypes. I don't have my next door neighbor, John, or the woman Mary right. I work with or, or whoever mm -hmm. else to counterbalance that. So the more we get to know people, and that includes, by the way, having pictures up on the wall of people who represent um, heroes and sheroes who represent different cultures and uh, different ethnicities, different races, different sexual orientation, all of that. Um, that just having those pictures on the wall has been found to have an impact because the mind is constantly being fed by this image and reminded that there are positive people from those groups as well. And they found that that actually reduces bias significantly. I predict that this interview will be one of our highest, if not the highest downloaded podcast. 
I'm gonna listen to it again and slow it down a little bit so I can just kind of seep, let some of these insights seep into us. Uh, Howard, I appreciate your time today. Step six is about getting data and feedback. Yes, yeah, and this is where we really have to check things out. So this is where we stop and say, okay, I'm feeling this, but let me see if I can find out if it's actually accurate. You know, um, I've seen business decisions like this. I was working with a, a, a home mortgage company back in the um, 90s, for example, and they had certain standards, um, these redlining issues come up. We don't, we don't give mortgages to people beyond below a certain income. This was the kind of standard. And I asked them why, and they said, you know, well, everybody knows that they don't return. I said, really, can I see that data? And they kind of looked at me with a blank stare. And uh, well, everybody knows this, they said in our industry. I said, yeah, I get it, can I see the data? Well, there was no data. Nobody had actually studied it. So they set upon a group to study it. And you know what they found, Scott? The exact opposite was true. The people in lower incomes don't miss a payment because they know in the communities they live in, if you miss a payment, people could come kick you out of the house the next day. Wealthy people know they're not going to kick out of the house if they miss one or two payments. So they started a whole business unit that generated millions of dollars in revenue with certain uh, in, with loans to people in incomes they hadn't been giving it before. So the data is critically important, you know, getting the right kind of information so that we can check whether or not these systems that we buy into yeah. are in fact true. Okay. Um, and in fact, in many cases, we find that they're built on myth, they're built on assumptions, yeah. and they're built on group memes that we've adopted without having any real credible information. Howard, you've been so gracious with your time today. Thank you for joining us. Before we end, What's next for you? You've written several books. You just sold your company, you said. I would be in Greece on vacation if I had just sold my company, but what's on the horizon for you? Well, Scott, I, I tell people all the time that I'm rewiring, not retiring. I mean, I still, you know, I'll probably be doing this work, you know, until they drag me out on a stretcher, um, just because it's been the passion of my life. Yeah. Uh, because, as I said, because of my family um, background and origin. Um, but what what's really, I, I've been spending a lot of time thinking and talking about lately is the whole concept of belonging and how do we create um, true belonging. And, and um, the distinction for me is I, my dear friend and, and mentor, Dr. Jeanette Cole, likes to say that diversity is being invited to the dance and inclusion is being allowed to dance. I like to say belonging is when you get to choose some of the music. Um, but how do we create uh, in our culture? And I think it's so important right now with the polarization we have now as a culture that we bridge some of these gaps that we realize yeah. are common connections. But particularly in business, um, how do we create uh, cultures in our businesses where people do feel a true sense of belonging and that and that means inclusion that means diversity that means communication that means all of these kinds of things so that we can get the best out of ourselves so my last book our search for belonging begins to talk about that and i'm actually going to be beginning to write a new one um, this uh, fall with my son who's who's studying positive psychology at berkeley my son jacob and um and our tentative title for that is belonging incorporated nine pathways to creating organizations that are healthy Howard, this was an invaluable conversation. I will be listening to this on audio when it comes out. Thank you so much for your time today, your class act. Howard, the author of Everyday Bias, thank you for joining us, sir. Scott, it's really my pleasure. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And tell our mutual friend, Gotti Gandhi, we say hello from Franklin Covey. I will do that for sure. Thank you so much, and thank you for joining us for another, I think, invaluable conversation on the On Leadership series. There's a reason why this has become the largest subscribed to leadership newsletter in the world. It's complimentary, comes out every Tuesday in your inbox. If you're not subscribing, visit franklincovey.com, click on the On Leadership tab, sign up, sign up your friends, your family, your colleagues. We'd love to have you be a part of this weekly conversation, and we'll see you next week on this same channel with a new guest for On Leadership. Thanks for joining us.